being able to schedule regular times for you to get good night's sleep, go to bed at the same time every night, basically, get some exercise, try to maybe get some meditation in, do a gratitude practice. Those are investments in aging healthfully, empowering your brain to practice well, and keeping your performance uh, where you want it to be. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, in the fourth of our ongoing series, The Life of a Lawyer, Start to Finish, we're exploring the experience of becoming and being an attorney from applying to law schools through retirement and everything in between. On our last episode in this series, we discussed how to get a job after law school with Rachel Gezerze. On today's episode, we move on to the next step and discuss reprogramming a lawyer's brain. We will discuss the impact of law school and a heavy law practice have on a lawyer, how to manage everyday stresses of the legal profession, and how to ultimately improve overall well-being. And to do that, our guest today is Deborah S. Austin, J.D., Ph.D., professor of the practice at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law. Dr. Austin teaches lawyering process and professionalism, well-being skills for the effective lawyer. She writes and speaks about how neuroscience and psychology research can improve the well-being and performance of law students, lawyers, and other professionals. Dr. Austin is currently working on a new book titled The Legal Brain, A Lawyer's Guide to Well-Being and Better Job Performance for the Cambridge University Press. Welcome to the show, Dr. Austin. Thank you for having me. Deborah. let's start with you. Can you give us some background on how you got into the field of law and psychology? After I went to law school, my first job that I was able to get was with Westlaw, which is training lawyers to use an online legal research service. I had been a middle school teacher before that, so I think teaching was what I was supposed to be doing. And I encountered in a session with my son on anger management a resource where I learned uh, that The speaker said, when we are angry, we lose 30 IQ points. And I was really struck by that statement and tracked down the academic who told me that's really just a metaphor for what's going on in our brain. And because I've been really interested in in how to help learners learn more effectively and how to be a better teacher, I just needed to figure out what was going on in the brains of stressed law students. And that's how I came to this area of research. Well, it sounds like you had a great background teaching middle school because I'm sure that middle school students are really not that much different than law students. (laughs) They're fabulously crazy. You know, having gone through law school myself, I I felt that there was a, uh, looking back at it now, that there was a significant change in the way that I thought. Um, I don't know what it was that did it, maybe the constant study or... Uh, the Socratic method, or just being exposed to uh, cynicism for really the first time. Uh, How is it that you see law school affecting law students? How do they change? I really think it comes down to the competitive culture. 
that starts in law school and continues into legal practice. I think the aspect of adversarial zero-sum for some of us to win, whether that's getting the few A's within the grade curve or the top partnership opportunities, then there has to be a, a whole big number of people who quote unquote lose or don't win, however you want to look at it. And I think that that is very detrimental to our well-being. Do you think that starts in law school or is that a, the competitiveness is something that's innate in the type of people that go to law school? I think it's a combination. I think that we have a bunch of type A overachievers who are drawn to attend law school and get into the legal field or get legal training to do something else. And then almost from day one of orientation, they, students are told about the external rewards that they should be seeking. They should be worried about their grades. They should be worried about their GPA, trying to get on law review. And all of this just really drives a competitive cycle for students who are all really high achievers. They're all used, they're really smart, they're really passionate, and they're used to doing very well. And it's very difficult to put a group of that type of people uh, in a mandatory grade curve and tell them, okay, go compete for the tiny tail of A's and A minuses in this grade curve. Right. And then let's talk about what happens after you graduate. I mean, the competitiveness doesn't stop there, does it? Not at all. It ratchets up because you add on top of the competitive achievement you're trying to seek as somebody practicing law, you also have the responsibility to a client. And that's a big responsibility. And a lot of money. Yes. So, what have you heard from law students and lawyers about the stress of, of the profession over the years? I have heard everything from, I walked into my 2L year and I don't remember a single thing from my 1L year, to I am a 3L, I am so stressed out, I'm working two jobs, I'm doing an externship so that I can pay my rent and pay you know some of my tuition bill and exist and get through school. And I'm told that I'm not doing enough. Isn't that the truth? What's your response to that? How, do, how are law students supposed to deal with this level of stress? Well, uh, I teach the class that you mentioned in the introduction, and it's basically based all on my research to try to help students understand our learning system, our reward system, and what happens when we're under stress. And the bottom line is we get brain damage when we're under stress. Stress hormones cause us to have damage and even death of the cells in our memory processing hippocampus. And that means we simply cannot think, learn, and remember as well as if we weren't under stress. Is it impossible task to eliminate stress in law school? Yes, I think it's impossible. It's not impossible to try to learn some management habits and techniques, but it's I don't think we can eliminate the stress. I think the competitive learning environment, which which I've written about and am critical of, uh, and I also don't think it's necessary, frankly. I think we would see a distribution of performances naturally if we didn't have a forced grade curve. 
But I think that creates such a level of stress and it harms decision-making and cognitive capacity to a pretty grave degree, I think. And I think that continues into law practice. But I think that the good news is, is that we have neuroplasticity in our brain and we can do some things to manage our stress and also undertake some some healthy practices to kind of heal and and rebuild our brain. And you talk about the loss of brain cells. In my observations, it seems like law students and lawyers lose the brain cells of social interaction. Well, this competitive environment really hurts social connectedness because you're weighing, am I going to be you know, part of this social network versus am I going to be able to out-compete my, my friends in my cohort of students or my colleagues in my practice? Right. Are study groups one of the ways that students, law students, uh, overcome this kind of stress or help try to overcome it? I think study groups are useful in that they help students form a few close connections in law school, and that that is a healthy practice for managing stress. What are your other tips and techniques for managing stress? Well, there's a number of practices that we can do that I like to think of as building our mental strength. And some of those are things like mindfulness and meditation and gratitude practice, which keeps us focused on what's positive in our life and what we're thankful for. So integrating some of these practices can be really helpful because they downregulate the stress response. They give us a little bit of the relief that we need to kind of turn off this chronically activated stress response in our brain. It does seem kind of chronically activated during law school. I mean, I I went to University of Iowa and went through the accelerator program, so went through in just a little bit over two years. I kind of kept that pace up for a long time, but it it took a toll on me. I think it took a toll on my family. If I had been in your class, what would you have told me to do? Well, we, we actually try a number of these practices. So journaling is another practice, and I, I have journaling prompts for my students once a week where we explore different practices, and then they journal and, and uh, reflect on how they're going. We meditate to end every class. And what happens is every semester, I say, okay, we're going to try one five-minute meditation, and then I'm going to let you guys tell me if you want to keep this up. They always want to keep that up. Um, They get such relief from that. And some of them have not actually taken five or 10 minutes to stop doing, 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 and just be, that, that you can just see the relief on their faces as we turn the lights back on in the classroom and they get ready to go to their next obligation. So we practice these things and we talk about other interventions that can also strengthen the brain. What kind of interventions are those? I mean, are, are they the kind of thing where you have your friends come and tell you that you're just losing it? No, <laughs> no. Um, that, that could be a big red flag to tell you you need to practice these interventions. But the major ones that are, are really good for our brain are also good for our general health. And so probably the most important is exercise. Anything that raises your heart rate is going to be beneficial to your brain because 
What happens in your brain is there's a little protein called brain-derived neurotropic factor, BDNF. And it's a little protein that's like miracle grow for the brain cells in our hippocampus, which I mentioned earlier is our memory processor. That's the brain structure that gets very much harmed by stress, but can be healed um, by having access to this protein. And the best way to get increased BDNF is through exercise. That's everything from a brisk walk to taking the stairs in the law school building to, you know, running, cycling, whatever raises your heart rate, weightlifting, anything that gets your heart rate going is going to be beneficial to your brain. Another thing that's really important is getting enough sleep. So many law students and lawyers think that what they need to do to be productive is to to power through and shortchange their sleep, whether they're trying to finish a brief or they're trying to study for an exam. And that's very counterproductive because memory consolidation, which a way to think of this is developing expertise in your brain, happens largely when we're asleep. And if we're shortchanging our sleep, we're not getting the same level of memory consolidation than if we're getting somewhere between seven and eight hours of sleep on a regular basis. And I'm sure that you're going to also recommend that we eat correctly. Yes, there's, uh, there's nutrition and then there's trying not to self-medicate. So the nutrition story, the short story is more fruits and vegetables. There's a lot of research that says if you can cut back on animal proteins, that's a good thing for your brain. But if you can really just think more in terms of consuming as many fruits and vegetables as you can fit in your diet, that's really helpful to your brain health. When you get out of law school and you add in the stress of, or at least the uh, additional factors of, you know, earning money, paying off your student loan debt, and perhaps a family, what do you suggest to those lawyers who add things to their already existing stress? So I would argue that working on your brain health and your mental strength is an investment. It's an investment in aging well. It's an investment in protecting your brain, and it's an investment in improving your performance. Because if you're not caring for your brain, your performance is going to be weaker. You're probably not going to realize it. You're going to be like one of those little rats on a wheel in a science experiment, and you're not going to realize that your performance is compromised. But being able to schedule regular times for you to get good night's sleep, Go to bed at the same time every night, basically, get some exercise, try to maybe get some meditation in, do a gratitude practice. Those are investments in aging healthfully, empowering your brain to practice well, and keeping your performance uh, where you want it to be. A friend of mine once said, or once asked me the question, how much money I invested in law school? And I was quite proud of the amount of money that I spent because I got a great education from it. So I mentioned it. And that friend responded to me, well, then you need to make sure that you make the investments, actually the ones that you just talked about. It's just as much of an investment in those as it is in law school. I agree. Well, it's just about time for us to take a break. We will be right back after a word from our sponsors. 
Learn by Doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu slash interactive or download PLI's mobile app. It can be frustrating to wade through the malpractice insurance application process, but you know you need to protect your firm. Alps designed their application to be flexible, easy, and 100% online. Fill it out, review your quote, accept, and pay in as little as 10 minutes. Alps is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance, and they are endorsed by more bar associations than any other carrier, so they understand law firms. They also know how valuable your time is, and that's why they make legal malpractice insurance easy. Visit alpsinsurance.com to learn more. That's A-L-P-S insurance.com. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm joined by Dr. Deborah Austin. We've been discussing how to manage everyday stress in the legal profession, law students, and how to improve your overall well-being. Deborah, you suggested some of the common ones, diet and exercise, but you talked about things like mindfulness and gratitude. And I'm pretty confident that most lawyers and law students who are those type A personalities probably don't understand those. How would you explain that? What is mindfulness? Well, mindfulness is trying to stay focused on the present. We as human beings under stress tend to worry about the future or regret things that have happened in the past. These are things that in the present we can't do anything about, and they really cause a lot of ill being. And so the the mindfulness practice is, what can you do to try to stay focused on the present moment, 
the present 10 minutes, the present hour, the present day, and not give in to a large degree of rumination. And gratitude practice? How do you, how do you practice gratitude? So the typical practice that you might have heard about is gratitude journaling. People think of setting a little notebook on your nightstand and every night write down three things you're proud of or three things you're grateful for. But because my students are so busy, what I teach them is you don't need to write it down. You only have to think about it, which means that if you put a post-it somewhere that reminds you to think about what are you grateful for while you're doing something else, that counts and that will help. So I tell them maybe put a post-it on your bathroom mirror and think about what you're grateful for while you're brushing your teeth. What I do is I think about what I'm grateful for when I walk my dog because my dog gets me outside first thing. It's beautiful outside. I love the morning sky. And I start to think, what am I grateful for while I'm, I'm giving her a nice walk and myself as well? And so gratitude practice is something that can tip us toward optimism. And the thing about the practice of law is it's basically trained pessimism. Because what we're trained to do is worry about every bad thing that could happen to a client and then mitigate against those bad things. And that is trained pessimism. So we need to kind of help ourselves tip in the other direction toward optimism. And one of the really powerful things, and lots of research shows how powerful gratitude is, is taking a regular opportunity to reflect on the good things in your life, the things that are going well, the things that you're grateful for. You know, you mentioned, or we talked briefly about developing relationships in law school and having friends that have gone through basically the same train wreck that you did. But when you, after you graduate, you're going to add some, or maybe even during law school, you're going to add some intimate friends. You're going to add uh, family, potentially, you're going to have children. And I think at least based on my own experience, that trained pessimism, that cynicism tends to spill over to the your very close relationships. How would you suggest that lawyers adapt their adult relationships in the sense of, you know, being a parent, being a husband or a wife, and having other relationships with close family members? Because personally for me, I, I know it's been difficult. I agree that it's really hard when you're in law school and you're getting trained this way or when you're practicing and you're working many hours using these skills, these considerable skills, that it's really hard to to flip a switch and turn that off. And yet it's really important sort of not to put this on the people that you love and care about. So thinking about how can you take a break, take a beat. Maybe part of it would be to do your gratitude practice while you're commuting home. I realize that a lot of us have been working from home and so being on on Zoom, maybe that's a walk from the office to the kitchen, Uh, but maybe a post-it note needs to go on the computer monitor or the laptop or the steering wheel to try to reframe you know, what is really good because you're going home to or you're walking out the kitchen to the the people that are most important in your life. I also think that meditation is a really powerful way 
to downregulate your stress system. There's a wonderful book called The Anxious Lawyer by Gina Cho. Uh, she has a co-author, forgive me, I don't remember her name right now. Um, but that's a terrific book specifically for lawyers about mindfulness and meditation. But the other thing is, is if you don't have time to read a book, there's all these great apps and you can just download an app to your phone and start. And that might be the most reasonable way to start practicing meditation and just giving yourself five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes to stop doing Take a break. Maybe this is a good break between work and family, work and loved ones. Downregulate your your stress system and give yourself a chance to reframe and realize that you're going into the most important social connections that you have, and you want to treat that with the love and care that that those folks deserve. That sounds like great advice. You know, over the years, I've also seen some of the worst things that happen to lawyers. Uh, a number of my friends have, lawyers that I practice with, have, have dealt with alcoholism, have dealt with drug abuse, have um, some kind of substance abuse as an alternative to the uh, mindfulness and the gratitude and the meditation uh, suggestions you've made. How do you avoid or how do you recover from those types of substance abuse when, you know, you're trying to numb yourself out from uh, all the stress that you've been feeling? So self-medication is a very common way in which law students and lawyers and, and generally human beings deal with stress because it's a short-term quick fix. It's a quick way to get just a little bit of relief, whether it's through a cocktail or a big bowl of ice cream. You know, there's a lot of different things that people can choose to self-medicate with. And in my research, I have learned that the area of our brain that is involved in this process is the motivation and reward system. And this is an automated system in our brain that, that results in a number of networks of brain cells. And that's what makes bad habits hard to break. They are literally tracks of brain cells in our brain. So it takes some work to develop a commitment and an intention to try to resolve stress in a different way. And oftentimes that takes getting help. So that might take getting help through therapy. Therapy is a great way to work on habits that you want to change. That might be getting help through a recovery process and provider and AA meetings and, and that, that type of thing. That might take getting help with your diet through something like a resource like uh, the Noom app to reframe your relationship with food. So it kind of depends on what your substance of abuse is, but I would say when you're caught in a self-medication cycle, that is the time to reach for the resources that, that others, that professionals can provide. It's really important to get that help, to get that support, because there's lots of different strategies and it's a long-term project. And so professional help is especially important in that process. You know, I've had the situation personally where I think because of the type A ambitious and competitive type 
lawyers or people that become lawyers that you mentioned, that people think, or lawyers tend to think, well, I can handle both. I can handle the substance abuse or I can drink and uh, relieve myself and then go home to my family and, or however they live their lives. How do you, as a, as a friend, as a person outside of seeing that, how do you reach out to that person and say, you know, you're not handling it? I think that in some ways, really high achieving, strong performers can, ha- can handle it to a point And then they don't see, which is what you were just mentioning, they don't see when they hit the point where they're not handling it. And this is where loved ones have to get together, reach deep, arms around the person, uh, come at this with a really caring, giving, supportive attitude of, you know, we love you, we care for you. We see you're struggling. Maybe you don't see it like we see it, but we want to help you get help. We want to help you be better. And ultimately, the person has to to make that choice. But I will say, from personal experience, these are hard roads, and the best way to support is never give up on the person. Some people would have a different philosophy of, you know, let somebody hit a rock bottom or something. Maybe I'm too much of a softy, but I don't believe in that. I believe that everybody is worthy and important and worth helping and worth saving. And uh, we ought we to do our best and, and not give up on them. Before we wrap up, I'd, I'd like to ask kind of a personal question. You know, I've been in practice now 35 years or so. And one of the things I've started to notice is that I'm losing a lot of close friends. Uh, not only to uh, substance abuse in some circumstances, but uh, suicides and just generally not having taken care of themselves over the years. So there's two aspects of it. You know, how uh, for the people that are experiencing some type of suicidal thoughts, because uh, I know that that exists in law school as well, but also for the people on the outside, how do you deal with uh, someone who has committed suicide or someone has, you've lost a series of close friends? Because there's some grief there that it's a little difficult for somebody who's, you know, gone through the process of being and uh, changing your mindset and trying to even trying to rewire your brain. It's a long question, but suicide and grief, how do you deal with those two things? I would say that uh, the very best things would be to try to to be present, available, and loving to the people who are still here, who are experiencing the loss, and therapy, getting help. Processing grief is extremely painful. It can take a very long time. We, we process grief differently as human beings. And professionals, therapists can help us. They can, they can meet us where we are. They can work through the pain points and they can do, help us do the, the hard work and the long work of recovering and seeing that everybody who's still here, our lives are worth living and going on and that the grief is real and the process is real, but to get help, to offer help. And for those of us who aren't professionals, 
You know, these are the kindnesses of bringing a fresh baked loaf of bread, sitting with someone, taking a walk with someone, being present, being available when they're ready, having coffee. It's a very, very difficult situation. And we just need to be the best, kindest human beings that we can to help others with this. Thank you for that. You know, perhaps that should be the penultimate question because I think there's one more. We've had almost three years now of, you know, some level of social isolation due to this pandemic. And we're going to be transitioning back into the classrooms. We're going to be transitioning back into the offices. We're going to be transitioning back into a collective life of, of people. Given that we've been so isolated, what kind of skill sets do we need to look to in order to make that transition back in? I would say uh, my best advice would be to be kind and be patient. Our, our skills are, we're out of practice. And we experienced a time where we were told being around each other was a risky proposition. And we've had to go through a variety of stages of grief and trauma throughout the pandemic. And people are going to come back at different paces. And so we need to be patient with people. We need to be kind. We need to let drivers merge in front of us. We need to, you know, try to smile and and say hello to people at the grocery store and wave at our neighbors and at the people we see in the park when we're walking. Uh, just just try to extend human kindness and patience with people, I, I think, is is our best philosophy right now as we come back into learning how to be good people together. Right, because we are out of practice. Well, Deborah, Dr. Austin, I'd like to get you to share your final thoughts uh, as well as your contact information so our listeners can reach out to you if they'd like. Uh, kind of give us a sum up of the kinds of things we've been talking about. I would argue the message is hopeful because it is never too late to work on mental strength and brain health. Because we have plasticity in our brain, good choices, good habits on an every single daily basis are, are helpful and healthful. And they lead to recovery. They lead to better function. They lead to wellness. And so all the good choices that, that you can make, it's really a hopeful practice. Every day is a new day and an opportunity to make those choices and help each other uh, make those choices. And so I would say uh, stay positive, try some of these practices. You're worth it, your, your well-being, your longevity, um, your brain function is worth it. And if you are interested in my work, you can find it on DebraAustin.com. Great. And that's D-E-B-R-A-A-U-S-T-I-N.com. Thank you very much, Dr. Austin. It was a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you. And I think Dr. Austin has been exactly correct. I know that personally going through law school is a stressful event. Being a lawyer, and especially as a trial lawyer, adds even more stress to it. Throw in a family and children and relationships and trying to earn money and paying back debt. All the things we've talked about just add more stress to it. But all it takes is just being present, being mindful, being gracious, and being kind. That's Dr. Austin's essential message. Reach out to your friends and establish relationships. 
they're the most precious thing you'll have in your life as a lawyer. If you've learned something from today's podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.